This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay review 24-hour revenge therapy by Jawbreaker. Blah, 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 blah. And, and this is them basically recognizing the fact that they're going to alienate a bunch of their fans. It tends to be a little flat to me. It's, it's not very multidimensional. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Imanichi. Joining me on the left side, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, how you doing? Party on the left side. Party on the right side. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna try to drop in a, um, whoa, 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 stop the clock. That's what I've been saying, <laughs> as much as possible. I couldn't figure out how to finagle that one into the last podcast. Whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe if you say something ridiculous, I'll drop that in during okay. your, uh, your summation of your opinion of this album that we're reviewing today, which is Jawbreaker's album, 24-Hour Revenge Therapy. And uh, just out of curiosity, had you ever listened to Jawbreaker before? I uh, don't believe I did. All right. May have, may have heard them in passing. I was also unfamiliar. This was a record. I, I selected this one. We're, we're outside of the listener suggestion list right now. This is one that I picked primarily because I had heard of them from a lot of people, but never heard them. So I was like, I should probably educate myself on what exactly this band sounded like and uh, what their whole deal was. Because a lot of people seem to think that they were pretty important and uh, I tended to not believe them because if I hadn't heard of them what the hell do they know <laughs> that's the way I look at exactly yeah. so why don't we just get into that's a it fantastic outlook you have thank you let's let's do some history you should run for um, the Republican nomination oh god <laughs> I was trying to steer away from that but Oh boy. The uh, Dig Me Out podcast mm. on the Dig Me Out podcast by Jason Ziak are not the opinions of the podcast as a whole and do not reflect ownership's uh, opinion. Thank you. Blah, 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 blah. History of the band. Jawbreaker was formed in New York City in 1986. Well, what? actually, that's not true. Well, it's true in the sense that that's when they formed the band. But actually, Blake Schwarzenbach, I want to say his name is, and Adam Faller were childhood friends in Santa Monica, Santa Monica, California, and they were classmates together at Crossroads High School. And in 1986, they moved to New York City to go to New York University, and they decided to start a band. They were looking for a bass player, and they found a person who had put up a poster on campus looking to play bass in a band. His name was Chris Burmeister. Uh, they originally were called Rise, and they went through several lead singers trying to find one. In the fall of 1987, Schwarzenbach, Baller, and Bauermeister... I guess it's Bauermeister, not Burmeister. 
Uh, took time off from college and moved to Los Angeles to continue playing in Rise. And they added Bauermeister's childhood friend John Liu on lead vocals. So at the time, they were recording a demo, and Schwarzenbach... I, I know I'm mispronouncing that name, and everybody's going to be like, It's not Schwarzenbach! I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a long name with lots of consonants. So you're just going to have to bear with um, he wrote a song called... He should have changed it to something like Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley. Yes. We'll call him Swarzy. Swarzy wrote and uh, sang a song called Shield Your Eyes for the demo and was the first song that Avery sang on. And it re... According to um, the lead singer at the time, John Liu, said it def- it defined where the band was going to go. The lyrics worked with the with the vocal delivery and he wasn't in favor of it but he realized he said quote i don't think i can do anything like this uh soon afterwards the band changed name to jawbreaker and the three original members decided to ditch john lou as the lead singer that task was left to his roommate bauermeister to tell him he was no longer in the band so that had to be comfortable to fire your roommate from the band (laughs) that you're in i'm not going to get too extensive basically this is the only lineup the band's ever had just three members they've released seven inches in and um eps but the main things that we need to focus on are in 1991 they released their debut album unfun on the independent label shredder records they relocated from los angeles to san francisco the following year and released Bivouac in 1992 on the Tupelo Recording Company and uh, the Communion label. Shortly after that, Schwarzy or Schwarzenbach, whatever his name is, this is serious now, he underwent surgery to remove polyps from his throat, which were affecting his uh, ability to sing. And we'll get into that because that's covered on the album, I think. In uh, 1993, the band opened for Nirvana on tour and released 24-Hour Revenge Therapy the following year in 94. This drew the attention of major labels. They signed a $1 million contract with DGC. And the following year, 1995, they released Dear You on DGC. And the following year, after internal tensions in the band they broke up and that was the end of jawbreaker but of course nothing is the end well following jawbreaker um schwarzenbach moved to brooklyn he became a freelance video game reviewer and did some djing before forming jets to brazil in 1997 which put out several albums between 1997 in 2003 uh, Bauermeister returned to his job at a toy store that he worked at before Jawbreaker started touring eventually returned to playing in bands he's joined the Chicago pop punk band Horace Pinker from 1999 to 2001 and played on one of their EPs and uh, Fowler remained in San Francisco in the Mission District he opened Lost Weekend Video with Jawbreaker's tour manager Christy Colcord. He played in J Church, 
1998 to 2002, and then in the band Wysaw Lane in 2006. After Jets to Brazil broke up, Schwarzenbach spent time teaching English at Hunter College in New York City and briefly fronting the band The Thorns of Life in 2008 and 2009. He currently plays in the band Forgetters. Bauermeister now lives in Olympia, Washington, and plays in the band Mutoid Men. Baller still resides in San Francisco, where he still runs his video store. And through his own record label, Blackball Records, he has been re-releasing Jawbreaker albums with new material, uh, videos, stuff like that. And that is the history of Jawbreaker. Now, this album in particular, need to make some notes about this was recorded it was released in February of 1994 it was recorded by one of our favorite producers of all time Steve Albini and Hmm. I think that's going to come into play when we talk about how this album sounds when you realize that Steve Albini was involved so Jay um, I'm really interested to hear what you have to say because I'm not sure where this fits into your um, normal likes and dislikes of albums that we have listened to. You liked Seaweed and uh, Quicksand, and I can hear elements of those bands in this band. Hmm. And then I can also hear how um, some of the other aspects of this band might not work for you. So... uh, Tell me, what are your impressions of Jawbreaker's 24-hour revenge therapy? Oh, this is a tough one for me. Um, first, I, I got to pick on you a little bit. Uh-oh. The, uh, this is an album that you do not want to listen to as a low-quality MP3. Um, you also want to make sure that when you listen to this album that you don't just listen to it with earbuds. The way it's produced, the, just sonically, what's going on, both of those things can really change the way that that it sounds, especially the the MP3 thing. So the MP3s you gave me, I know we're at the mercy of what we can find sometimes. They just really, all the frequencies that MP3s ruin are the ones this album lives in. So there's this whole middle range of things going on that you just gets lost in the swooshy MP3 distortion sound. Um, I was fortunate to, to find it on Spotify and was able to listen to it on there, which was way better quality. Um, even streaming that through my car and listening to it without earbuds, it sounded, it sounds a lot better and I could actually pick up a, a lot better sense of what's going on. You know, it, it tends to be a little flat to me. Uh, it's, it's not very multidimensional. It's not... At least, at least at first, I would say, you know, maybe fifth time through, I start to, especially once I started cranking it in the car, I started picking up on some things that um, I didn't hear the first time. But I, I would say overall, it, it's definitely not as, for me, not as dimensional as something like Seaweed or Quicksand is. It's way more rooted in, in straight up punk mm-hmm. a lot of the time. I like elements of that, but sometimes it just goes, it just goes to straight punk. And maybe not for a whole song before a verse, or there's a couple songs here and there where, where they'll get in a groove where it's hard to 
find a melody to latch onto or a riff or or anything sort of discernible. It's just kind of you know three chords and three chords and not really much of a chorus. Um, there are some songs in here though that that do pop out and there's some elements of it that do pop out. Boxcar is a pretty cool song. There's a little bit of dynamics there, right. which is nice. He does a cool little stop in the in the chorus. I only think there's one chorus on that song. He does a uh, pretty neat little stop um, and, and delivers a vocal line. Just little elements like that. If they did more of that, I'd really like it a lot more. So, uh, six and seven, I liked a lot. I think the tempos start to change a little bit, um, which helps. They get a little bit more dynamic. But then it goes through, you know, two songs that are just, um, to me, they just sound like straight-up punk songs. Kind of like Social Distortion minus... The hooky t- hookiness and how tight social distortion can be. These guys are a little bit looser than them. Mm-hmm. And then it slows down at the end and sort of has a little bit more, again, dynamic. And I actually like when they kind of play in slower tempos too. And the drummer does some tom stuff, and the song opens up a little bit because he's got a really, really unique voice, which I do like a lot. And I, and I was struggling to figure out who the hell he sounded like. Like I kept. Well, Mike Ness is the is the closest. Yeah, but he kind of sounds British too, doesn't he? Like there's a there's a singer that was just I, I thought of Mike Ness, but I wasn't sure if that was it. I, I kept feeling like there was somebody else there that, that he was really close to that I just could not quite pull out. But he's got a really cool delivery. Um, sort of remind me a little bit the guy from the Whole Steady at times, where it's a little bit talky at times and just. Kind of the tone of his voice is in a similar ballpark. Those songs where it opens up a little bit, you can appreciate that some more. And kind of the way that his unique take on a melody and delivering lines and stuff, you can appreciate that a little bit more when the guitar gets out of the way. The tones are not very good in this album. I'm surprised Steve Albini produced it. Like the drums sound, I don't know, kind of muffled. And the guitar is way, like, kind of sharp and abrasive like I said if it's not in the right listening environment it can be a difficult listen at times there's parts of some songs which is like uh, you kind of cringe a little bit yeah I'll say you know jumping on on that um, this album didn't really open up for me until I started reading the lyrics along with the music because I had a hard time figuring out what the hell he was singing yeah the thing I kept reading about was He's, amazing, he's got amazing lyrics. He's got this beat poet approach to the lyrics, and it's really interesting. And um, I wasn't in love with it musically. Um, it's almost, I don't want to say too simple, but like there's not a whole lot of challenge to the music. It's yep. all pretty much 4-4, four, 4 chords, 
hammering them over and over again. There's nothing, you know, in terms of anything really wild and crazy. And what I learned from reading through the, the history of the band is that they started out as pretty much a straight-up punk band. And this is their transition album. And you can uh -huh. hear that not only in the music are they struggling from even within the same song to break out of what their constraints are as being a punk band, but they're actually even doing it in the lyrics in the song Boxcar that you mentioned. I actually had yep. to, I have the lyrics up on my computer here because I wanted to be able to reference them. The opening yep. line lines of the song are, you're not punk, and I'm telling everyone, save your breath, I was never one. And it's interesting because it's basically a group of guys who had made their name in the, in the California punk scene who kind of burnt out on being on playing along with those rules. Hmm. And um, he even says in that same song, I'm coloring outside your guidelines. I was passing out when you were passing your rule, passing out your rules. So they're looking at punk, looking at these, you know, you're supposed to do X, Y, and Z, one, two, and three. And they're saying, no, we're, t we're tired of that. We're going to try to do something. And this, in terms of where it places in, in when it was released, has a lot of mentions of being the precursor to emo. That this is the punk crossover album that led to emo because so much of his lyrical content is the relationships suck and I'm going to cut these things open and let them bleed and, and just pour out my soul. Um, it's not going to be about being aggressive and angry. It's going to be more self-reflective and, and, and introspective about the way that I'm feeling about this stuff. And it wasn't until I started reading the lyrics that I got a really, I would say like respect for what they were doing. I don't necessarily think I'm going to be going back to this album I would be. I am interested to hear what they did before and after it. I want to hear Bivouac. I want to hear the album that came right before, and I want to hear the album that came right after, Dear You. Mm -hmm. Dear You is considered the, you know, it's the major label polished rock album, and Bivouac is considered the the essence of their punkness. It was when they're most polished as as far as being a punk band. And, and this is them basically recognizing the fact that they're going to alienate a bunch of their fans because they're not going to make a straight-up punk rock record again. And they sing, mm. they're, it's, they're pointing that out in the lyrics. Like, we're not, we're not punks. We're going to do our own thing, and whatever rules you have to apply to us, we don't care. We're not interested in that. The second song, Indictment, it's interesting because it toes the line between um, them criticizing where they're going and and also criticizing the people who are going to criticize them it's uh there's a great line and they said and he says um our enemies will laugh and be pointing it won't bother me what the thoughtless are thinking i'm con more concerned with, with what we're drinking
they're already they already know that simply by stepping outside of the punk playbook that they're going to get in trouble but to them that's as stupid as the pop music that they're going to be criticized for making which at the end of the song he says it isn't who you know it's who you burn it means nothing selling kids to other kids if you think we changed our our tune i hope we did they're they're happy to embrace the anger that they're going to get for 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 making a commercial album even though there is nothing commercial necessarily (laughs) yeah this is far from commercial but I, i i really like the fact and i you know there's a outsider element to this that even though they were a punk band that schwarzenbach knew that they were moving that they were never going to stay true to that 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 was their proving ground and that's where they got started but they had to expand outside of that in order to fulfill what what they wanted to do as musicians and songwriters and as a band and he knew that they were going to take crap for wanting to expand and wanting to experiment wanting to play tempos that were not acceptable because our songs um where they slow it down like on outpatient you know and that's where i when i brought up him having the surgery outpatient is definitely in reference to that song that brings up now i'm talking through my pen do you read me am i bleeding am i bleeding again you know he's unable to speak because he's had this throat surgery so he's only able to express himself through what he's writing it's such an interesting subject matter you don't often get a person in a fragile state like that able to express it in song but still make it sound tough That to me is indicative of the whole album, where there's there's from song to song, he's always coming up with interesting lines, characters even um, on the West Bay Invitational, which is it basically it's a song about a party, but he's not really even though it's a party with supposedly the people that he knows, people from bands and labels is his line in in the song, um, not necessarily people that he's in love with the people that he even likes like there's a lot of him sort of looking around and being like i'm not sure that i'm, I'm really i'm really want to hang out with this crowd anymore 
Yeah. That that's well, it, that's what makes the album for me in terms of um, wanting to listen to it is is the lyrics, which are hard to get to because of his delivery in some parts of it. Yeah, I mean, you, and you can get the sense of that. There's a transition going on in this album, and it's the band um, a little bit conflicted or not completely self-assured and confident on who they are quite yet but they know that you know you can tell there's something going on here there's a force pushing them and pushing and pulling them in, in new directions which is honestly that those are the moments of the album where i really perk up and take notice and get get interested and then there's moments where they go back to their punk leanings and it becomes a way less interesting um and even you know like you said it, it's really hard to at times to decipher all the lyrics but you know like that song boxcar the one i mentioned when the music cuts for you know half a second in the chorus the line that he delivers is one two three four who's punk what's the score mm-hmm. and he does it in this really sort of like you know kind of sarcastic manner like and i got the right there i got the notion of like oh this is a band that's kind of you know getting in the face of punk rock and saying you know you guys can be just as you know petty as as pop music can be and everybody's like you know keeping score and you know saying who probably counting who has cred and who doesn't have cred and you know all that bullshit that goes on within that scene which at the end of the day is no better than the politics that go on in pop music if you if you really break break it down so i mean right there even if you don't get all the lyrics the first couple of listens that one line really sticks out to you and it kind of sets the stage for for uh i think what you just talked about what, what essentially the whole record is is struggling with now just to put it in uh, perspective this came out in 94 two other albums from the same area uh that came out in 94 were green day's dookie and the offspring's smash which are supposedly California punk bands mm. that, that also had a bit of a rock influence going on. They were bands that started out in, in California punk scene and, and I guess San Francisco, L.A., that sort of punk scene, whatever. I know that those aren't they're four hours apart, but whatever. I'm sure those bands played both cities. Um, but Green Bay more uh, Cal, uh, San Francisco. And... Um, they both crossed over with non-punk songs, um, which yeah, those albums are way more commercial, right? Than this, yes. And um, it's just interesting because they were expecting a big backlash from this record, and maybe the hardcore punk, you know, crowd did elicit a backlash against this album and then against the following album which came out on a major label I don't know but you know Green Day had its roots as a straight up punk band and their transition was much bigger to you know when I come around and and Basket Case and Longview those are those are alt rock songs I mean you could make the case that Basket Case is, is a punk song but when I come around is no way in any shape or form it's a punk song. It's closer to no. than it is a punk song. So basket case isn't a punk song. Either. Yeah. It's it's like well, or Foo Fighter than anything. 
one thing that so um, I'm learning here that sort of makes sense of some of the confusion that was going on in my head when I was listening to this was you said that these guys are originally from New York? Well, no, they're originally from Santa Monica, California. They went to New York University for college and then they moved back. So they, they are... I mean, they had more of a, a... When I first was listening to the album, I was getting more of a, a New York punk sense than a West Coast punk sense. I think that's because that's where they started as musicians. So it made sense that they were going to see shows in New York. You know. Yeah, it had like that... Um, a little bit of a looser, um, even the way the guitars sound, um, types of chords he's playing, uh, some of the dynamics, the vocal delivery, just it had that had more of a New York edge to me, um, which was weird because as I'm listening to it, they're obviously making tons of references to California on the album. Right. And then there's <laughs> times when his his voice almost sounds like he's got a British accent. And uh, I didn't do any research on the band, so I'm like, where the hell is this band from? I can't quite put my finger on it. I, I can only assume they're from, if I had a guess, just say California, just because they keep singing about it. But, you know, everything else that they're doing seems to be not necessarily what I would think of as a, I think what we became comfortable with in the 90s of what the California punk band sounded like, you know. Um, and No Doubt and a Blink-22 and a... Green Day, and I mean, think about all those bands and sort of what they did with punk, and it was a very sort of commercial, polished version of that genre, and these guys aren't like that. You know, they're sort of doing it almost like Dinosaur Jr.-ish at times, when they get kind of mid-tempo and slow. Yeah, that's a good, you know, 80s Dinosaur Jr. is not far off from some of the sound on this record in terms of the way the guitar sounds, and, um, the overall approach to it because mm-hmm. 80s dinosaur jr is way different than 90s dinosaur jr i think what you're what you're picking up on and that britishness is almost kind of has a, a resemblance to the earlier replacement stuff in the sense that it was very like paul westberg was singing this like almost boozy sort of like swagger yeah Probably because you know he's singing. All the lyrics are really like depressing. Either they're either confrontational or depressing. He's either getting in the face of the people that he thinks are going to be upset about this record, or he's singing about lost loves and and how relationships have been screwed up. Um, I don't, you know, except for the the first song is sort of outside of that those two ideas um the boats from the boat the boat dreams of the hill or from the hill is the is the first song and it makes it's sort of a metaphor song um there's a main lyric that i caught is um keeps patching it and painting thinking about his pension plan but the boat is out to pasture seems it never had a chance so from that you get the sense that it's a song about never really fulfilling the dreams that you have that you know this boat's never going to make it out on the water um yep. which may be a sort of a meta commentary on their own careers because um at this point they had not really made, been successful monetarily as a band and from what i read they were actually homeless um sleeping in their van for a while 
so I would imagine if you're in the back of a van writing lyrics for your next record, you might be singing about how you're not really fulfilling your dreams. Sure. <laughs> and you also might be thinking maybe what we're doing isn't really working and we need to be trying something else, which is where you know, a, a sort of being confrontational with the punk scene that was supposedly supporting them was, was being challenged. Mm-hmm. They, uh, the tour that they opened for Nirvana on was the In Utero Tour. Uh, was six dates in October of 93. I'm wondering if they got onto that tour because of Albini. Cause of, oh, I'm sure. You know, because I can't imagine. I mean, they were on. They weren't on DGC yet, though they would sign to DGC. Can you believe that they got a million dollar deal? I don't under. I mean, it was the 90s. I understand that people were throwing around money for ridiculous bands. It had no business, you know, making that kind of money. But I would have thought that they would have just gotten a deal and like had a record pay for it. Getting a million dollars. I mean, they were homeless. They were living in a van, and now they've got a million dollars to split among three guys. You know, that's wow. that's insane. I want to hear what happened after that. Like how much that they actually spent on the next record and how all that worked out. From what I read, again, you know, parsing together various things from different websites they were going to break up after this record because they you know again this was on a minor small label out of san francisco they weren't really sure if anything was going to happen and then they go and open for nirvana and they start getting people from record labels saying uh yeah you want to sign so they actually met with uh warner capital and dgc dgc made the million dollar deal so that's where they that's why they ended up signing with them. So you said Deer used the album after. Yeah. There was two other albums on Spotify. There's a live from ninety six. Yeah, that's ninety six that they um they were touring, I guess, for uh, for Deer You. And then there's an album called Eyes of an Eighties Band. Eyes of an Eighties Baby. Uh, Maybe that's not that. I don't think that that's them. Yeah, live okay. for thirty ninety six. Yeah. That came out in ninety nine, and then there was a compilation album called Etc. that came out in two thousand two. Okay. And we'll get into, you know, eventually we'll get into the, uh, the Dear You, album, but that caught a lot of flack when that album came out. Um, I guess in in two thousand seven, the band was actually approached by a documentary filmmaker, who made a, a documentary on the Minutemen. It was the first time that all three band members were together in 11 years. Like, they basically didn't get along anymore at the end of it, and they didn't talk to each other. Wow. It was, uh, Bauermeister was putting out all this stuff from the band's archives, but... Yeah, I was going to ask how that sat with them. They, they, were, they were really involved. He was running a video store? Yeah, he was running... Or he still runs a video runs store? Runs a video store in... Such things exist. I'm guessing still? they're probably a, a DVD store now or a Blu-ray store. But even still, yeah. But you know, like, that doesn't everybody just get their movies through Redbox and, and Netflix now? In uh, in in weird pockets of the country, you still have people who want to find those like indie video stores that have like you know French wave titles that you're not going to get. <laughs> and um, which hey, I'm all yes. about the French new wave. I've seen the 400 blows. I know what I know what's up. So, oh wow! Yeah, damn! Yeah, I just dropped the 400 blows. How about that? 
so Jawbreaker, we have covered quite a bit on this album. I think it's fairly safe to say that this was never meant to be mass consumed. This doesn't have the polish of the other albums that were released uh, from the California punk scene at that time that we mentioned, Offspring and, and Green Day. It's almost like it was destined to be a cult classic in the sense of his lyric writing combined with the transitional nature of the album makes for a really like tense combination. But I don't, I, you know, I'm sure they got played on 120 minutes or Alternative Nation or whatever the show was on MTV at that time. But they were never going to be a heavy rotation, you know, a K Rock station or anything other than college radio. Yeah, there's no, at least not on this album, there's nothing that can be played on any commercial. There's nothing commercial commercially viable on this album. No. Just in the way that it's even just, just sounds. I mean, right. it's just too harsh. Um, there's some moments where you could see promise of them getting to that point. Right. Um, but uh, And to some people, it's, that's not necessary. You know, some people, this is exactly what they were looking for in terms of being a oh, yeah. cursor to emo and a, a post-punk band. And that's fine. Well, but, in, but we're talking and that's in an interesting overall, take on uh, That's an interesting take on, you know, our sort of conversation at the end of all these of, like, why wasn't it bigger? Um, sometimes the answer is it was never intended to be and that's fine right um sometimes it was clear you know they were trying to write you know they're trying to be a big band big commercial band so you know you can talk about whether it failed or not uh, in the case of this yeah i think we both agree there was no attempt here to be now maybe the next album when you're signed to G- dgc and you get a million dollar advance yeah i would think uh, at that point there's some thought there that maybe you can uh you can get to you can find your way to commercial radio somehow. Somehow, I don't think that they wrote, tried to write Dookie too, but I think that they definitely cleaned up the overall sound and tried to, you know, uh, clear up the vocals, bring the guitar, bass, and drums more in line with um, what would be considered radio friendly, because they did have some yeah. attempt to have some singles off of that. But we'll see. We'll get there eventually. I guess, I don't know if it's really a thumbs up or thumbs down on Jawbreaker. I think we're both sort of happy to have explored this, since we both were not familiar with it. But I don't think it's necessarily something I'm going to be running back to. No, it's one of those albums that you got to qualify, I think, a little bit. If you're really into, uh, I think The Roots of Emo is kind of an interesting subject. I think we've touched on it with Seaweed. We've touched on it uh, now with this album. Uh, I think we touched on it a little bit with Quicksand. Um, I think you're dead on. I think lyrically, this is, you know, it's a great example of, of that break that, that happened from punk to what eventually became um, emo. So, I mean, if, if you find that sort of thing interesting and want to hear that, uh, you know, it's probably worth a listen. Yeah. So if all you've listened to is Dashboard Confessional and... Um, <laughs> you're getting bored with that and want to know, that. where did they come? What were they into? Right. Sometimes I feel like people are not curious, that they're just happy to listen to exactly what's happening at that moment, and they don't really care what came before them. So if you're, oh, if you're not, that's such a shame. I know it is. Um, if, I'm doing that with uh, like '70s rock now. Like all the bands that the bands I loved were listening to and influenced by, and sort of like even if they were around the same time, you could tell that they were paying attention to. It's just so much fun. Like you just, 
there's so much good stuff out there and there's so much it's so easy to get now with with like e-music and spotify and even itunes that it's it's just it's nice to go back and hear where these bands were coming from and not every song is going to be probably a a huge uh, favorite for everybody but there's going to be a couple that you're really going to like and right fully relate to from the band that you sort of draw drew you to them and you know that's a good point because i just um i just went through the entire deep purple catalog because i'm a i really like some of their songs but i really never listened to a whole album i was like i'm gonna sit down and well not sit down but i'm gonna over a couple days i'm gonna try to make it through all their albums they're not all gems but i did find some stuff where i was like hmm this is a really cool song and i've never heard it it wasn't. It's not really single material because it's 12 minutes long or whatever, or you know, six minutes of organ. You know, that's a good way to you know, find some interesting stuff. Go back and listen to the bands that influenced the bands that you like. That because you know I, I listen to like the Raconteurs, the way that they use organ and stuff, and I'm like, there's some deep purple in this. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, and there's no excuse anymore, you know? I mean, even 10 years ago, if you, to do that, I mean, you literally had to go out and buy the CDs. Right. Which, you just couldn't do it, you know? Uh, as, mu- as much as I would want, yeah, uh, Deep Purple's a good example. I've always been interested in, and always heard them as being a major influence on just about every hard rock and metal band that was formed up until even now. I mean, all the formidable uh years of of those genres were they were a huge influence on they were probably the original so them and sabbath so uh, i've always been interested in listening to their stuff but what am i going to do go i'm going to go buy 30 how many albums do they have like 20 or 30 (laughs) albums albums. i'm going to go buy 20 cds and then you know half of the stuff is you know i'm not going to be into but the other half i am i mean it's just it's not realistic but now it's so easy to go get those, you know, at least listen to them. You, even if you don't end up buying them all, you can at least go on any music service and at least, you know, take a listen yeah. and uh, grab the songs that, you know, perk your interest and you can sort of connect with. Yeah. Spotify, that's a great device I, I or, or application. I, I hope everybody, you know, signs up for that or gets, an, you know, if you need an invite, let me know. Because um, <laughs> uh, I've been using it a lot. I've been listening to all sorts of things that I never would have checked out had it not been for that service. So I, I highly suggest that. Pandora doesn't work quite the same way, so it's not quite as useful. You can get like random samplings of stuff, but you're not going to be able to listen to like a whole Brian Eno album, which I've been doing recently. Yeah, there, yeah, there's another one. I'm sure you were like, man, I really, I've always heard great things about him. I'd really like to check him out. Well, you know, he's got how many albums? He has like and- 40 albums. And, like, where do you start? He puts out, like, three albums a year, and, like, two of them are instrumentals that, like, have the sounds of clocks ticking. You know what I mean? And then there's, like, one album that's sort of, like, (laughs) experimental And that's the album you don't want to accidentally buy and pay $15.99 for it, get it on CD, and be like, oh, shit, I got the album that it's clocks ticking. Right. (laughs) So, you know, now you can just sit down and you listen, you know, you can listen to it whenever you want, and you can sort of... How you know, you know, and there's some of those things you'll probably star and keep as being like, you know, the gems of of that catalog, but it's just so much more exposure. And guess what? All the artists get paid. Yeah. They all get royalties whenever you play their songs. So, so. if you're going to get on a Spotify, I highly suggest that your first listen is the Stepford Five. <laughs> 
that's and that's where we're gonna leave it at because we want to get we want to get cash money paid. It'll help. Actually, all the money that the the Stepford Five makes will be going towards helping out this show. So we have uh, plenty of bills to pay, and um, nobody sent us any checks so far. So if you would like to help us out another way, go on to Spotify, start streaming Stepford Five. You can just leave it on and hit and hit repeat <laughs> while you're gone at work. I would be fine with that. Yeah, we will take those checks. I didn't game the system there, did I? I think I might have. Hmm. I'm sure they've planned for that, dude. Okay. Damn. Just saying. Okay. There's, the point is, there are no excuses. Spotify and services like it provide you with plenty of opportunity to listen to everything. So, Including this Jawbreaker record and Jawbreaker. the other follow-up album. So, so, Exactly. We are going to... You know what? I don't know how this works on there. I actually have a Dig Me Out playlist. I don't know if you do too, where I'm, um, I'm putting all the albums that are available that we've reviewed into that playlist. So I think if... Yeah, I started picking out highlights. Sweet. I didn't put the whole albums in, but I started picking out like the songs that we referenced. You may be able to go on there and search for Dig Me Out and that playlist may pop up. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Because yeah. uh, I know friends of, of mine can see that playlist, but uh, I'm not sure how the general public can... Uh, and discover it. We need to look into that a little further. If anybody knows how we can make that happen, send us a note. Yeah. All right. That wraps up Jawbreaker 24 Hour Revenge Therapy. My thanks once again to my co host Jason for joining me on this one. We're going to be back soon, probably next week. And um, we'll have a new record review. So uh, tune in, and we'll be back with another episode of Dig Me Out. Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation about this episode. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.